Hey, everybody. The Line Podcast is back for February 23rd, 2024. What are we going to talk about today? Lots of stuff. Uh, Some media news. Don't worry, we'll leave that to the last. We know we're more interested in that than you are. A lot of federal political news, even if it was overall kind of a quiet week. But I think most importantly, and probably with the most detail, we'll be spending a considerable amount of time talking about jerking off. That and more on the latest episode of The Line Podcast. That was a pretty good teaser, huh? That was... Pretty good. We're also going to talk about Joe Rogan, Dr. Phil, the fall of vice and parental rights. But, Jerking you know, those, eh, it's all pretty Jerking spicy. On. Goon caves. The word of the day of goon is goon caves. Goon caves. Uh, yeah. Okay. So before we get into anything on the list, is there anything you just wanted to add? You had a um, a banger of a column uh, late in the week. Uh, Ryan Jesperson, a former radio colleague of mine at Chorus, has gone independent. God bless him. I, I genuinely admire what he has done doing that. That's it's a case study for for a bunch of us, believe me. Um, he had the prime minister on, and you got annoyed. Um, more sort of viscerally concerned about Justin Trudeau, and like a lot of people were in my feed, being like, "How could you only be getting viscerally concerned about Justin Trudeau now?" And I think that I need to um, explain to these people that I'm mostly dead inside, so I don't really get visceral about ju- about anything until like until it really hits me deep. Yeah. There was just something about his sort of mannerisms, his thinking, his approach to all of it that struck me as um, profoundly and disturbingly messianic. And um, I don't want to say juvenile because it's not the right word, but like uh, this is not someone who is coming off to me as as a man who's capable of thoughtfully considering the other side of a problem, right? He's kind of so ensconced now in a, in a partisan bubble that there is no there is no way in anymore. And this happened, I don't mean to be cruel to him in particular, this happens to everybody after a certain amount of time in power, right? Typically about the amount of time he's been in power. Right, like this this, this is something psychologically that happens to people, but it does mean that the stuff that they start to propose and the stuff they start to do, it becomes increasingly flaily, desperate, and divorced from reality. And I, I think that that's a really, really bad moment to be bringing in things like the Online Harms Act. Um, which is something that we're going to discuss in this podcast. So I have concerns about the state of the liberal apparatus headspace, both of Trudeau's per- personally and also the people around him. Um, and I, I have some real, it, it, it hit me in an emotional way for the first time. Like I can disagree with liberals, I can disagree with conservatives, I can disagree with everybody and be fairly emotionally detached from that. But this is where the first time where I went, I'm getting that feeling. So, Jen, I, I don't I want you to understand this is not me taking a poke at you in any way, but I, I just want to mention the listeners. One of the things I've told you as your colleague and your, your editor, I edit you and you edit me, is that I often think you approach things with almost too much emotional detachment. Like you you come at mm. it with too much IQ, not enough EQ. Yeah. And I and I, I thought it was really interesting to see you have an emotional, an emotional reaction. reaction. Yeah. Um, and you know, I didn't really I liked your column. I enjoyed it. I, the readers seem to have liked and or hated it and, and whatever their, their preference was. But what I thought was interesting about it was I don't really, how do I put this? I don't care about the Alberta minutia stuff. Like that's, that's your half of the operation. Like I don't sure. like it's whatever, but there's one thing that you said that I thought was bang on and that I have been 
thinking about myself and I've touched on it, in my own writings and comments at times, it, the psychology of it a little bit gets into why I think this government gets itself in trouble sometimes it does not seem to have room in its own understanding of the universe for good faith disagreement. That's right. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, this isn't new. This, this has always been one of the weaknesses of the, uh, of, of federal liberals and, you know, it's federal liberals themselves have said that the kryptonite of the party is arrogance. And I think for too long, almost as a matter of institutional faith, the liberals think the conservatives are evil and evil and the NDP is stupid, dopey and, and utopian and, and can't be trusted, and that they are the arbiters of moral righteousness and also prudence. They, they, and, and what's good for them is what's good for the country. Because what are liberal values? Canadian yeah. values. Okay, well, yeah. what are Canadian values? Liberal values. That's right. And I think this gets them into trouble. And kind of talking as we were a minute ago about um, the, the the prime minister being in a place. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I've made this point before. There's nothing happening to Justin Trudeau or the federal liberals right now that requires nuanced micro political analysis. Probably 95 percent of what's happening in our federal politics right now, I can sum up in one sentence. He's been in power nine years. And that, and that has a lot of effect. But one of the other and, things and none, I, of us, I none of us would be better, like just so that we're clear. If you you put me into worse. into into a yeah, you put you put me into a pressure cooker. You surround me with people who are blowing smoke up my ass. Um, you put me in charge for nine years, and trust me, I'm going to be a lunatic too by the end of it, and probably a worse one. He's probably yep. managed to maintain a better grounding on reality than most people. Yep. But it's done now. He yep. he's not. You you can't come back from the spiral he's in now. He's. It, not while he's still in power. He needs to step away from this for a while and then regain his perspective on some of this stuff. Um, and I think that actually in 10 years from now or 10 years after he leaves, uh, he will actually be a very interesting person again and a very interesting and, and probably very thoughtful commentator and individual again. But right now, I think that, that, that that's not something he is and he can't continue in this role anymore. Um, and but it won't go well, well for him. No, and it won't go well, and it's not yeah. going to get better, and he's not going to rectify the psychological failings that have led him to this point. So where does that leave you? Now, I do have something else I want to talk about in the column, and that has to do with Alberta and our renewables moratorium, because this was like a one-line item I put in the column that has like a whole other separate column worth of backstory. So I couldn't put it in this column because it would it would be an absolute garden path nightmare. But I do think it's probably worth discussing, but it's not worth discussing over Goon Caves and Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives coming for your porn. When do you want to talk about it? Do you want to do a second column on it? No, let's, let's, I just want to talk about it briefly at the end. Sure. Okay. You know yeah. what? I'll, okay. I'll make a note of that. Um, yeah. What was it again? Renewables? Yeah, it's about the Alberta Renewables Moratorium, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So it's a couple of people were giving me some flack on it on Twitter, and I certainly wasn't going to get into it on Twitter, but I think it's worthwhile to discuss, let's discuss a bit of it on the podcast so I can point to it on the podcast and just leave it there. Yeah. You know All what right. I mean? Cool. Sure. Uh, like I said, jerking, off. jerking off, jerking off, jerking off. Let's, jerking um, off. let's go like, and subscribe and let's, uh, let's commence the jerk off phase of this podcast. Fantastic. Um, Wait, the conservatives, what? pardon me? The jerk off. I'm joking. Yeah, you immediately agree to that, and then you looked up. You're like, "Wait a minute, what did I just get myself into?" Are Are we recording this for YouTube or OnlyFans? Like, we well, gotta be clear, separate the streams here a little. You know, bit, for okay? an extra five dollars a month, there is <laughs> going to be a differently, an unrated version of this podcast. Um, yeah, but you're gonna have to put your put your uh, driver's license into our into our database in order to access it. 
Well, that's, I mean, that's the crux of it, right? The conservatives this week have been talking about um, some kind of age verification system to access online pornographic material. Well, it's Um, not just conservatives. This started, I don't think that the original proposal started from the conservatives. I think it started actually from a liberal backbencher to create I don't remember. But let me tell you why. There's been versions of this being talked about for like 20 years. Like right back to the TV parental control chips in in televisions, right? And we should just clarify what we're talking about here. We're talking about a bill that's called S-12. And this is a bill that that is proposing or considering putting age gating on online porn. With the argument being, you know, kids can't walk into a 7-Eleven and pick up a nudie mag. We don't let kids do online gambling. We don't let kids do all sorts of things. Why are we letting children essentially have unfettered access to online porn? Which is a reasonable beginning of this argument. Completely. So S21 has been proposed, I think, a couple little while ago. But this week, Pierre Polyev held uh, an actual proper announcement where he went all in on age-gating porn, decided to make this one of the one of the more visible planks of his of his agenda um and i think you and i are in agreement about the fact that this is terrible policy matt would you like to explain why you think this is terrible policy do you yes i I, i'm happy to but i think we might disagree about whether or not it's terrible politics where do you stand on that because i just want to know how to break out this podcast you want to talk policy first politics after uh, yeah, let's talk politics first. I think we agree it's terrible policy. We disagree that it's terrible politics. So the policy of it, I think, is completely sound for the exact reasons you said. Age gating is routine and ubiquitous. Voting, driving, drinking, tobacco, firearms, military service, yeah. gambling, you've already mentioned. 100%. I get it. The problem is not in the theory. It's going to be in the execution. Uh huh. There is no effective way to have a completely elegant age gating system that first of all will not be circumvented like mm-hmm. i this may shock people including my parents to discover but i bought my first beer in a bar uh, first beer in a bar before i was legal drinking age mm-hmm. shock there's always ways around this stuff and the more sophisticated the government's efforts to combat that the more intrusive the policy and the technology needed would have to become yep and I also think there are, I, mean, I know I want to talk about the politics of it later, but one of the related policy issues is I'm really excited to see the party that would never rule for a vaccine mandate in any circumstances over issues of personal autonomy, wanting access to the jerking off information of millions of Canadians. Yeah. Like that's that's really stupid. And I think most importantly on the policy and the pragmatic part of it here, I have always believed on a very fundamental level that nerds versus government regulators are going to win every time. The nerds are going to be more nimble, more creative, and more, frankly, more motivated than government regulators. Teenagers, in particular, the world's most horny and reckless people, are always finding ways around systems put in place to control their behavior. This is a universal constant. My kids are not quite that age yet, but they're getting there, and they're going to run rings around me. I have no illusions about the fact that I'm going to be the first parent or adult in human history to overcome the teenage compulsion to look at pictures of boobs and do other things. So so it's going to be a complete waste of effort and it will be humiliating for any government that enacts it. The first time the CBC comes out with a story revealing zero effect on negating uh, pornography, it's going to be a complete 
debacle and a conservative government should know that or a conservative party should know that. So that's policy. Yeah. So here, here, I would even go further than that. I would say, look, the, the big difference between over the county nudie magazines, firearms, most types of um, gambling and things like that is that uh, these things are rooted in material access to material goods. Even when we're talking about online gambling, you need to have access to a credit card, for example, which mm-hmm. minors don't have. Um, when we're talking about all- online porn, holy shit, the genie is so far out of the bottle on this one that yeah. it, the, the, I mean, the idea that you could rein this in, even if you wanted to, even with the most sophisticated and dictatorial top down type approach, I think that you're, you're, you're kidding yourself. I would share a, a parental concern with underage access to porn. Who wouldn't? But I, absolutely yeah. we do. I, I think this is actually is a legitimate problem. And I think it may even be a legitimate problem that warrants a, a policy response by government. But I think that that policy response has to be rooted in reality. reality. And it also has to be rooted not only in reality about the state of the online space, but it also has to be rooted in reality of the competence of the government. Can we remind viewers that we are talking about a government that spent $59 million on an $80,000 app, okay? The, the, the government itself and no part of it has the technical sophistication or competence to even contract out the mm-hmm. capacity to create a, a, a garden-walled internet that can be age-gated this way, competently and, and, and effectively. There's just, it, it's not there. I just don't have faith the government could do this. You might be able to argue that if they were working with like, say, Apple or the ISPs, okay, so now we're going to have ISPs age-gating and monitoring our stuff. The, the, the privacy implications of this are absurd. Now, let's say that you take the least restrictive approach and you just say, you demand that the porn sites um, uh, get at, to put, you know, we demand a driver's license to gain access to. And I think this is actually what some states have done, right? Okay, but think about what you're doing then. You're then demanding, for example, that, that every time you want to go jerk off, you're going to go put your driver's license into some shady website. Most of these websites are, are, are located in, you know, frankly, lawless server farms. Um, with They're all registered God in Estonia, knows, but operated in Malaysia. Yeah. With, 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 with God knows what kind of security protocols. You think that eventually some Chinese or Russian hacker isn't going to get into this get access to all of your porn history and then try to blackmail you say give me ten thousand dollars or i'm showing your wife your porn history like this is this is a dangling chocolate bar for people so like there's no way to do this that doesn't present absurd privacy and security risks there's no way to do this that doesn't um offer does doesn't require absurdly intrusive government overreach into the private lives of canadians um and I'm also, I think this, there, there isn't any way to do this. Like there's no practical way to do this period because it, a VPN and relatively minor technical ability, which most of our kids have, and it's, and it's over. So like it's expensive. It puts Canadians actual uh, online safety at risk. It's, 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 there's no way to do it effectively policy wise, absolutely fucking disaster. And I would even go so far, far into the policy, sorry, from the policy into the politics discussion of all of this and say it massively dilutes the conservatives brand. Yeah. Because if the conservatives are trying to present themselves as the credible defenders of online freedom, freedom of speech, 
um, the government's going to get out of your way. It's not our business what, you, what, you, what you're doing in your bedrooms. We're, we're not going to be like those woke medley liberals. You know, it's really, really hard to do that when you're trying to put in place a system by which somebody's going to have to grab out their driver's license or some kind of government or digital ID in order to goon off in their goon caves. Like, this is some of the most personal and intrusive stuff that you could you could be meddling in. So I think it's it's bad policy, and I think it could be bad politics. And I think you're going to take it there, and then I'm going to disagree with you. I, the reason to me this jumps out as bad politics is I think I mean I think some of the political uh, policy side challenges are inherently bad politics. Like it's and I again the conservatives should know this. Like the conservatives who destroyed the long gun registry now want a long jerk registry what the fuck that's 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 a that's a pull quote right there. are you the in conservatives who destroyed the long gun registry one now want a long jerk registry or maybe not that long a jerk people are busy <laughs> they have to just move on but to me this is wildly off-brand and the reason um this is such stupid politics and i'm saying this directly to the conservatives here, because I know a bunch of them will be listening or watching this. So staff, advisors, MPs, and otherwise, you're winning. Right now, you are winning. You are winning because you're talking about issues that Canadians care about. And now you want to regulate when and how they can fucking jerk off. This is stupid. And this is proving exactly what people are afraid of you about that you will not be able to resist your worst puritanical moralizing scold instincts and that you are captured by the most creepy fucked up bible thumping fringe of your base and you I, are I making just, it a policy plank i just want to like that right there is a is a is a youtube short that last 15 seconds was a thing of poetry and beauty matt and i enjoyed it so very much i want to see what the freedom movement does with mm. the jerk off police okay so here's the devil's advocate to this where it might be good politics one it's not just the bible thumpers who have issues with young people and porn and for the majority of canadians who aren't actually going to think very hard through the implications of what's on the table here they're going to be like of course we age gate online porn great and that's going to end the conversation Okay. The second thing is the problem with this is that you're going to have two types of people who are going to be really strongly opposed to this. People opposed to this on civil libertarian and privacy grounds, which Canadians don't listen to and don't care about. I mean, they don't. I'm sorry, we don't. We, Canadians just put up with so much shit. And you're going to have people who are like, but I want to access my porn hub. And those people are not going to come out and organize. They're not going to like create a, a coalition of Pornhub users. They're not going to be public. They're not going to lobby. So like, and they're not actually even going to vote on this as a ballot box issue or ballot box question. So even if like 80 to 90% of the Canadian population is using Pornhub and will really resent having age gating involved in here and will find that to be intrusive, at the end of the day, you know, 79% of them are gonna like shut the fuck up and put their goddamn driver's license number into the into the internet and they're gonna do what they're fucking told because that's what Canadians do. We do what we're fucking told. We're I not rebelling over this. We're not going public over this. No one's going to war for Pornhub. It's not gonna happen. 
something I got told years ago that I thought was really interesting, and this was around the time of the cannabis legalization debates before it was legalized while we were debating it, was that one of the most interesting swing demographics among voters were mothers of teenagers. Mothers of teenagers who were probably long past their own getting high age, but were worried about their teenagers getting criminal records. This is the sort of thing, there may not be a mass mobilization of moms for jerking off, but there will be moms who will figure out pretty quickly the exploitation dangers you're talking about, the privacy dangers you're talking about. And also you said at the beginning that no one supports unfettered access by minors to porn. And that's true. The problem is fettered access is going to be just as bad because what you're going to fucking have is you're going to have teenage black markets of some guy with a hard drive full of tit picks. And it's going to basically become an underground high school economy of nudie images. And that's going to incentivize all kind of bad behavior. Because oh, those will be the networks where it won't be some 1980s vintage VHS that's been ripped into digital form being uploaded. It'll be stuff taken by teenagers of teenagers being passed around. Yeah. This is going to make things so much worse. And I would like, I want to repeat to my, all the conservatives listening to you now, you're winning because you're talking about food prices, government incompetence, capability gaps, deliverology failures, state capacity and housing. And now you want to talk about jerking off. What the fuck are you thinking? I mean, I mean, again, agreed. But if we're going to talk about where the moms of teenage sons are going to land on this, the moms of teenage sons are overwhelmingly going to land on, I don't want my teenage son on porn. This is going to stop my teenage son from using porn. Great. Like, I, I, I don't think people are going to be thinking through the implications that, that deeply of this. I think they're going to, they're going to respond to this while we were talking about before IQ versus EQ. I think that this is going to be an EQ issue and people, and the, and the policy is going to win on the EQ. One or two well-crafted liberal Twitter campaigns will blow this up. And I think in terms of there are real problems with, with unfettered access to pornography, not even for minors. Like I believe well, like I've read some of the surveys about this mm-hmm. effect it has on marriages uh, effect it has had at altering sexual behavior to be more violent, more exploitive uh, access to uh, human trafficking victims and child sexual abuse material. All of these problems are real, but nothing the conservatives are proposing is going to solve any of those problems. It will solve one problem, though. The only problem what the conservatives are proposing, if they keep talking about it, that it's going to solve are Justin Trudeau's political problems. They are giving him a gift. But here's maybe or maybe the the liberals do a tweet thread about, you know, these creepy Bible thumpers coming for your porn. And Pierre Polyev shrugs it off and says, if the liberals want to give access to porn to children, they can do that. You know, like, as I said, like, it's, 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 it's bad policy, but it's not hard to make bad policy into good politics sometimes. So I I think that there's no answer on this one. I think we're just going to have to let it play out. Like, and subscribe to the line. Like, and subscribe to the line where we stand up to your right to jerk it to basically anything you want within legal limits. 
I within mean, yes. legal limits. We actually do. Um, okay, so on that online note, harms. It's just it just kind of as a follow up. Well, and also trans stuff. So online harms and trans stuff are, are the two sort of follow ons to this. Sort yeah, of thing. I mean, online harms. I think we can do in a minute here. Um, sure, it's it's now been announced that next week the text of the Liberal Online Harms Act, which we've been talking about for years, will come out. And I think there's some real resonance here on the on the, the pornographic stuff because online harms are real. They exist. They're a real problem. There may well be a, a role for the state in addressing online harms. But I also have absolutely no faith that the bill will address it, that it will be successful, and that it will not become a morass that just <laughs> swallows up. Like, we could have Pierre Polyev impaling himself on pornographic idiocy and Justin Trudeau impaling himself on online harms idiocy at the same time. And this actually, is I think how that, stupid I think our politics are. Well, and uh, and also that's where the strategic error is coming here because this is this is essentially what's going to happen. Um, so I'm going to withhold judgment on online harms until I see what's in the bill because I think that there's a lot of stuff that could be in an online harms bill that would not be government overreach and would be totally appropriate. And I think that there are some really interesting ethical and yeah. moral gray areas that a bill like this could touch on. Like yep. where do where do issue where do we stand on issues like child sex abuse material that is based in AI? as opposed to actual child sex abuse that forces us to require to have a that requires us to have a conversation about well is there a harm to for for people having access to child sex abuse material if, there if no is child no actual... has been harmed well and the answer i mean my position on that was probably yes but i i'm open to that conversation yeah. i think that that's an interesting conversation we could be having it's already a matter of settled law purely fictional depictions of child pornography in canada are considered child pornography yeah. Okay. So, so, okay, that's fine. So it's, it'll be interesting for us to see what, what in online harms parallels existing settled law on some of this issue. Um, but I'm open to the idea that there could be some necessary stuff that, that this is going to address. And this isn't just another stupid liberal wedge issue or, or just another stupid example of radical overreach on, on behalf of the state. I'm open-minded, but until I see what's in the law, I'm not going to say more. On we'll it. know in three days. We'll know in three days. And on that note, the other point that follow on point online harms check, check mark like check and mark. subscribe done. The other quick note that I think you and I wanted to talk about was that this week um, Pierre was uh, challenged about his position on um, trans women, what he called biological males in female on, spaces. In female yeah. spaces, for example, uh, washrooms, uh, sports. I think he was also change including rooms. Yep. change rooms, that sort of thing. And he came out with a pretty straightforward answer and was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm against it. So a couple of interesting points. And one is, one, if a politician came out with that position three years ago, their career would be over. That would be the end. And I think it's really interesting that in 2024, the conversation is so moved now that Pierre can come right out and be like, yeah, I'm opposed to it. And it's going to be like a one, maybe two day news story. We're not going to be talking about this next week. Um, Some people will, because there'll be protests and clips and social ad infinitum. But, uh, you know, Jen, honestly, I'm not even sure if it was a one day story. I don't know if people talked about it from one day. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, of course, there's going to be a, a committed activist base that's going to protest yeah. it. But I think that that activist base does not have anything resembling the power, the cultural power that it had even a few years ago. That is a really interesting and dramatic shift. Agree entirely. Uh, yeah. And I, we've talked I, about this before. The pendulum has swung and some people don't swung. realize it yet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other interesting thing in this is it's, I quite like that we're moving back into a space where politicians left or right actually say what they think 
and aren't trying to be constantly strategic about what they think and aren't trying to like thread needles that are impossible to thread from a moral perspective or aren't trying to be like, I don't want to talk about this because blah, 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 blah. Because firstly, we're, I'll get into what his actual position in a minute, but I think that for him to come right out, but for, for Pierre to come right out and say, look, this is what I think on an issue effectively actually kind of inoculates him because now when the liberals in two or three years comes out and say, um, Pierre is transphobic, Pierre can just be like, I've been entirely straightforward and clear about my issue. You can agree with me or you cannot. Um, I think it's good for politicians to be honest and straightforward about what they believe. And then for Canadians to have the ability to say, I either support that or, the, or I don't. That's what it, being in a dem democratic society is, and that's fine. Secondly, as for his actual position, firstly, I think we're lumping together a lot of different issues and we're pretending that it's one issue. Yeah. Um, trans women in sport, holy shit, that is a topic in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't think that there's one right answer for all sport in all circumstances, I, I, I you know, in all, all players, all athletes, that is a, a rabbit hole in and of itself. Um, and I would also note that Pierre's stating his preference, preferences doesn't always lead to policy and policy doesn't always lead to legislation. So we're talking about different things. Um, when we're talking about trans, trans women or biological males in female spaces, you know, trans women in the local mall, the female bathroom of the local mall is a very different conversation than a than biological male in a women's prison, a biological male in a women's prison, or I'm thinking, uh, you know, yep. a biological male in a change room where there's no separate stalls where my four-year-old daughter might be present. You know what I mean? Like th th there's a, these aren't the same thing and we shouldn't be conflating as them as the same thing. And I think that, that you know, uh, we've looked at bathroom bill laws. We've got something coming about the, the bathroom bill laws and how they played out in the U S and why they were misguided, not least of which, because they're unenforceable. Like you can't, you can't, and, and nor should they really be enforceable. I mean, most female bathrooms actually aren't like male bathrooms or you have Most female bathrooms have separate, well, all female bathrooms have separate stalls. So this isn't, to my mind, this isn't an issue. Um, but I think that, for example, if I'm going to an older pool that doesn't have a family bathroom, it's an older style change room where there's not as much privacy for women to be changing, you know, and, you know, say my kids with me, do I think that sort of a, a trans female, especially a trans female who hasn't had surgery and is still has a has a penis should be in that space? Um, where there isn't uh, an opportunity for that individual to to keep themselves private. No, I don't think that's appropriate. And I think that most Canadians would argue that that's probably not appropriate. So anyway, this is a long, long winded answer to what he's saying. But I think that the most interesting part of this conversation is the fact that it's almost not becoming a conversation. Um. Okay, yeah, I, I, I think I'm on board with all that. I, I would, I would inject one thing. Um, I don't necessarily give Polyev credit for sincerity. What okay. this could also be. Is well, I'm, not, I'm, I... not, I'm not saying sincerity. I'm saying candidness. Okay. Um, I think there's a difference between sincerity and candidness. Possibly. I think the point I was going to make, we've talked about this before. Every politician is a response to the one he's trying to defeat. Okay. And politics is an evolutionary cycle in the same way that germs become like resistant to antibiotics. Sure. Pierre Polyev is as much a response to Justin Trudeau as Sonny Ways was to dour, unsmiling Stephen Harper. Yep. And Pierre, Poly uh, Pierre Polyev is giving short, sharp, confrontational answers mm -hmm. as an antidote to Justin Trudeau's soaring rhetoric 
that is just rhetorical swamp gas where it's just there's, a, there's no there we, there this is about who we want to be as canadians yeah and and um, you know it, responding to every question with a three-minute statement that doesn't address the question you ask paul you have something he gives you a three-word answer and it'll probably and, trash you for ask, asking the question wrong but that's another conversation probably because that's a different strategy right but 100 yeah, I do not credit Polyev necessarily with the sincerity of his answers being honest reflections of deeply considered and uh, sincerely held positions, but I certainly agree with you that this is a tonal shift that is deliberate mm -hmm. because they are going to portray, even if, I don't even know if they need to portray it. I think Canadians have kind of made up their minds on Trudeau. Trudeau is a massive authenticity problem, mm -hmm. and that's why people this week are like, why is Polyev still talking about blackface? Because Trudeau has a massive authenticity problem and he's constant. Polyev is going to constantly remind Canadians of that. And then his next question, it's going to be, where do you stand on this issue? I'm for it. Where do you stand on this issue? I'm against it. This is deliberate. He's counter messaging the prime minister. Well, and, and he's also counter messaging the, the conservative leaders that came before him, because isn't this how O'Toole and to a greater extent, Andrew Shearer got into trouble is that they couldn't give a straight answer to their actual beliefs. I think they got and this is part of what people made made people distrust them and think that they had a hinted hidden agenda and they were out to blah, 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 blah. I don't you can't think accuse they... Pierre of having hidden agenda, man. It's, yeah. it's right out there. I don't think Shearer and O'Toole were undone by the same thing, but I think they no. absolutely had that similar problem where they were they were constantly dampening their positions to be more in line with what they thought mainstream canadians were i mean and it was actually the opposite in a weird way where i think o'toole like i think sheer yes if anything if anything o'toole had pretended to be more of a conservative than he was, than he was. to win the base that's a fair point yeah and I, I remember writing at the time where i said basically for all the problems o'toole had being criticized on on grounds of authenticity it actually was an incredibly interesting thing where you kind of got to like, we were talking before about EQ, IQ, zero out your EQ folks. Like I want no feelings for our analysis for the next 10 seconds here. What does it tell us that the conservative party leader understood that he had to be one thing to win the conservative party's leadership, but another thing to be broadly electable. But he wasn't broadly electable. He wasn't elected. That's um, the point. He was I mean, pretty I, I, close. I think like i yeah, think that election he was, he was pretty close and what what three years later we have pierre about to win a sweeping majority if things keep up i yeah. mean no i know i mean i think there's a point at which you and i have to admit that we were wrong well you know what or we don't at the have very time least, to get we, into this or, but or actually on a timing, podcast yeah. where we have more time i actually have a full i was wrong speech planned <laughs> but i think when we look at why i was wrong about this issue and again folks i'm not punting on this we just really don't have the time to get into it today because um well for boring family reasons um i don't know if we were wrong so much as the electorate has moved in a big way but you know, the people who were able to predict that the electorate was going to move in in a big way and that pierre would be a good how should i say this um symbolic rallying point for that movement they were right or they, they were, were lucky or they were lucky. I don't know which one it was, and well, that's a debate worth having. I think it's a debate worth having. I think you know maybe maybe for one of our pair our our sort of uh, midweek podcasts, we need to get one of the conservatives who was really strongly pro Pierre 
early to basically take us to the woodshed about how wrong we were for like thinking that O'Toole was going to be the guy because I think that if O'Toole were the guy right now he wouldn't be the right guy he would not be able to strike enough of a contrast against Trudeau at a moment where the cultural tide is radically shifting against wokey left stuff um to be able to corral this level of support I think he probably would still win O'Toole would still probably win but would he be 20 points ahead in the polls today? I'm not sure. The question I have, and we're not going to answer it now or probably ever, uh, is whether or not to be, as you say, Pierre Polyev and those around him were tactical geniuses and strategic geniuses and positioning him exactly, you know, the old saying about Wayne Gretzky, right? He knew where the puck was going to be. Yeah. Or is Pierre Polyev a completely stubborn weirdo who is nailing the timing where his issues happen to be the, the issues at the exact right moment in time. And looping it back to where we were a minute ago, the more he talks about jerking off, the more <laughs> I start to think he's a fluke and not a genius because <laughs> he has either strategically nailed the timing or he is locked into being the right guy at the right time. And in either of those cases, he should either continue with the strategy or grab on to the opportunity that is presented to him by fate with both hands. And no grab on pun intended, but the more he talks about Grab on it, and then sensually. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe like if, we're wrong about the goon caves. Maybe the people just want to age gate the goon caves. If, I'm sorry, if I love God that gives you a 20 point lead <laughs> and no one remembers anymore that you were talking about crypto <laughs> and you have door number one, which is continue talking about the price of housing and food or door number two, I don't think you should look at that while you whack it and you decide door number two is where you want to be. That to me is evidence on the fluke versus genius debate, but Let's, you're right. Let's build a whole podcast let's, about Let's build this a whole podcast around it because I think this is a really interesting conversation. Also, Bitcoin's had a comeback, by the way. So, right. I'll uh, use it for my age check verification on RedTube. Um, <laughs> like and subscribe the line like on RedTube. On RedTube. Give us, free give, jerk. Us a, give us, give us a, a, quor a quarter of a Bitcoin if you enjoy us. How much is that worth these days? A lot of Probably money. a lot of yeah. money. <laughs> um, all right, follow Vice. Matt, uh, do you want to do feel... Rogan first? Oh, yeah. We want to talk about, very quickly, Joe Rogan and Dr. Phil. You have to walk and... me through this. I don't know okay. anything about this. So All go. right, so Dr. Phil, you know Dr. Phil. Sure. Okay, Dr. Phil's on Joe Rogan, and essentially he's gone red pill on trans issues, and okay. it's quite the thing to see. Um, to me, this this is actually the beginning of the end of, of, of the woke. The woke has has died when Dr. Phil's turned on you. Like Dr. Phil is middle Americana as far as I'm concerned. And he's going on Joe Rogan saying essentially um, all of these major pediatrics and psychological associations have signed off on gender affirming care on very little evidence. And he's his mind is blown on this shit. So Dr. Phil is, has come out on this and it is interesting. So 
Um, I don't read too much into that beyond the fact that I think it's a real, real significant cultural signal of a, of, as we we're talking about the pendulum shift. Mm -hmm. But while they were discussing this, something about Canada came up. And Matt, I think we should get into the habit of when Canada gets brought up on things like Joe Rogan, we should probably talk about it a little bit, not only because we want to shamelessly strategically siphon off some of that traffic, um, but also because <laughs> I think that Canada has become a bit of a warning sign or a warning symbol to people on the right in America. We've almost become this, this, um, I don't know, there's a, there's gotta be a proper word for it, but they're kind of fixated on Canada and these terrible, weird stories coming out of Canada because they see that as impending as, as leading as a, indicator, a leading indicator of their own sort of issues with lefty liberalism, essentially. Oh, and, that, and that's funny because first of all, I think you're right, but also mm -hmm. I think the right wing in the States looks at Canada as a leading indicator and the left wing in Canada looks at the Americans as a leading indicator. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So yeah. I think that there's an opportunity for someone like you and you and I to have a thoughtful conversation about this kind of stuff when it comes up. Um, better so, not cut into my porn time. <laughs> everything's going to cut into your porn time, Matt. It's nothing I can do about that. Mm. Um, and we're not turning this podcast into your porn time uh, either. I have standards. Um, but anyway, I go where the uh, viewers want to be. <laughs> Joe like Rogan, and subscribe. <laughs> Joe Rogan and Dr. Bill going off and Joe Rogan starts talking about this quote that he heard from Canada about how, quote unquote, there are no parental rights. There are only um, children's rights, et cetera, et cetera. That is a real quote. That's a quote by uh, NDP MP Randall Garrison a couple of weeks ago made this quote and i'm paraphrasing here there are no parental rights in canada there are only children's rights there are only parental responsibilities and a parent, parent parents responsibilities to support and affirm their kids so a couple things to break down there one garrison is not a member of the liberal government garrison is a is, is an opposition mp he is making a fairly technical and fairly narrow legal argument um Maybe we will get someone to write for us, like a lawyer, someone who's qualified to write for us about what parental rights means. I mean, there's nobody disputing here that like parental rights are not enshrined in our constitution mm -hmm. or anything like that, but that doesn't mean that parents don't have certain rights and responsibilities to their children. So it's, it's, he's we also have rights over our children. Like we are the ones who would make decisions outside of a court injunction about yeah, medical care, for right. instance, or yeah. Yeah, that's right. So he, Garrison is not, Garrison is, is making a very narrow kind of legal technical argument that I don't think encompasses the full depth of the complicated relationship that parents have to their children in law. Let's just put it that way. But I'm also not qualified to get into that in depth. But at the same time, what Garrison said was objectively nuts. Um, yeah, the, the, there are no parental rights enshrined in the Constitution. And of course, parents have responsibilities to their children. But if you're going to make the argument that Parents have no rights, only children have rights, parents have responsibilities, and it's a parent's responsibility to support and affirm their child. You're, you've followed a chain of logic into a place where if I don't immediately affirm my, my, my child with gender dysphoria in their switched or non-natal gen, gender or sex. You are abusing that child. I'm abusing that child. Yeah. And that's where you create a whole sort of set of legal language and psychological language where you're justifying state intervention and states coming in and, and separating their kids. And, and that, that's a proceed directly to go thing too, right? Because yeah. the chain from the expression to the failure to affirm to the guilty of abuse is automatic. 
Yes. Once, uh, as, as stated well, by Garrison. Yeah. Once you've established in law and in the general cultural consciousness that failure to affirm is abuse, you now have inevitable government oversight being risk of that kind of logic and 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 and, and, and line of reasoning. And there are a lot of non-abusive, entirely reasonable reasons why a good- Randy to the right of me and Pierre to the left, both well, of them telling me, like, just get the fuck out of my house. Exactly right. Let me like, say no to my kids and jerk off in peace. There, 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 there are lots of non-bigoted, non-abusive reasons why you might not immediately affirm a child who was expressing sort of in a gender non-conforming way. Um, and, and I, there, you know, I, I think that there has to be a really, really wide range for, for, um, behavior and, and, and attitude in that kind of a scenario. And, you know, abuse is abuse, you know, like if you have examples of a parent kicking a child out, physically harming a child or emotionally or psychologically harming a child that is unequivocally abuse, then yeah, you do have an obligation to, to call in um a, a ch child to protective services and then there there, there yeah. often is a, is an argument for the case being involved and we already have that established in case law but if your concept of like you know my daughter's decided to wear decided to call herself a boy tomorrow and i i'm not immediately you know, my four-year-old daughter and i'm not immediately affirming her as a boy that's abusive that's fucking nuts just so that we're clear that that is insane um and sometimes it's really interesting to see how these clips which to us, I mean, because we're in Canada, we're so in the water, we don't really, I mean, to us, we're reading this as saying, well, Randall Garrison is, is you know, he's NDP MP, he's going to say crazy shit, like, whatever, we're not necessarily, we don't think that he's necessarily speaking for the government in that, in that respect. Yeah, in that to the foreign media, that is Canadian parliamentarian says. Yeah, exactly. Right. Canadian parliamentarian is saying that if you don't affirm their, from your kids, you're, you're, you're abusing, you know what I mean? Like, that's yep. the way it's getting interpreted. So I think sometimes it's worthwhile to look at how some of the stuff that's happening in Canada is being portrayed or perceived in America and break it down and, and examine it a little bit and unpack it a little bit. Because I mean, what Garrison said, well, that's kind of nuts. Um, and, it, and it really wasn't very strongly affirmed here for, or sorry, it wasn't strongly criticized here for a lot of different interesting reasons, including ideological ones. And that's that's a fair thing to have pointed out. I think here's the thing. I don't. I wish I remember who said this a few years ago. But it's basically if you ever want to destroy your faith in the ability of foreign reporting, read what the foreign affairs reporters write about your country. Yeah, exactly. Because they get it wrong. They, they get don't it wrong know. A lot. Yeah. They 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 don't know the context. They don't know the facts on the ground. They don't know who's a crank versus who's influential. They don't know how the power networks work. Yeah. It, it's almost like an international version of when a political party at its convention comes up with some completely fucking inane idea. And some people freak out, but everyone who actually knows what they're talking about goes, oh, look, the grassroots always proposes something moronic and we ignore it. And the party like mediation process always kills this idea. Randy Garrison's idea is not going anywhere in the parliament no. anytime soon. But Dr. Phil don't know that because he don't know Canada. That's right. That's right. Um, okay. So anyway, I, d I just wanted to uh, put that out there. Like and subscribe the line. Moving on, let's talk briefly about the fall of vice. Matt, I think that you have some uncharitable emotions about the fall of vice. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, not that we don't feel bad about the many people. Well, that's it. Like I have advice. I do. have very charitable emotions about the fall of vice, but I also I. So here's the thing. You and I are both creatures of the legacy media. Mm -hmm. We're independent now, 
you you're a contributor at the globe i'm a contributor at the star we both do stuff on the cbc so we we have i i do, I do stuff at tvo we both have a foot in two worlds mm -hmm. where we are both part of the legacy media we are also both in independent media but when we were both at the national post and this was 10 15 years ago there was a, a wave of new digital entrants there was huffington post there was buzzfeed there was vice and a lot of really smart, young, talented people left the legacy places to go to the new digital places. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were assholes. Not not, not in, in general and as people, but there really was an attitude among a lot of them. Of later losers, we're off to the promised land of the new digital media. Yeah, enjoy your collapse. Yeah, enjoy the collapse of these print pages. And sometimes it was in jest. Sometimes it wasn't. Huffington Post, if it's not totally gone, it's a husk of its former self. And the fact that I don't know tells you a lot. BuzzFeed is gone. Vice is now gone. And I do feel bad for the people who've been caught up in this because there I know some, some of them. Talented people there. And they have been doing really good stuff. Yes. They like have. some of the stuff, particularly on extremist movements, on sure. um, on fringe cultures, on uh, migrants. There has been fantastic work being churned out by Vice in recent years. So I do not feel good about what has happened to those people. And I wish every one of them success in, in finding a new place. And I, I think these are smart, motivated people. They've got the right stuff. A lot of them are going to be fine. And I, I, I say that to any of them who may happen to be listening to this. You probably don't feel this way today. And I wouldn't normally say this to a journalist who just lost their job, because normally when that happens, what I tell people if they ask me is that you're, you probably don't have a road back because it's contracting so fast. But I actually think most of the people Vice is going to be letting know are the right age of web savvy, mm -hmm. digital uh, reporting, and just a fucking scrappy can-do spirit. Yeah. These are the people who I think will have a better than average chance at either creating something new or finding work. And I think a lot of them are going to be fine. Mm -hmm. So this is not a comment on any of them as individuals. It's just a cultural internal media divide where a lot of people thought you and I were making mistakes by sticking with the old legacy guard. Mm -hmm. I'm still writing for the Toronto star. You're still writing for the globe and mail. We're both still on the CBC. And all those new places, the giant killers that were going to replace all those legacy places, they're gone. And do I feel good about it on balance? No, because this is a bad day for what's left of journalism. And it's never a good thing when any media outlet goes under. It's a bad never, thing. That's always a bad thing when yeah. that happens. That, that, that makes us all worse off, right? Yeah. Even if you don't like Vice or didn't agree with Vice, they were still producing stuff into the informational space that was valued by virtue of if it being there. I mean, can I make a little bit of a go woke, go broke observation on this one? I don't know. What a, lot of this, mean? a lot of the scrappy, intense, subversive energy of Vice kind of got sort of redirected and co-opted and reappropriated to a bit of a social mission that was incompatible with the 
horny, rapey, druggy aesthetic of its early years, that the thing, very thing that made it, made it, made it edgy. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we're talking a lot about pendulum swinging back and vices shut down. I mean, uh, yeah, look, maybe my, my own gut feeling is that the real mistake these places made is that they tried too hard to replicate the old model in a purely digital yeah. form. Like legacy media business structures and concepts just yeah. minus spraying ink onto dead trees and didn't work. And it didn't work for exactly the same reasons uh, newspapers are dying. But the thing is, the newspapers had the fiscal depth and frankly, the cultural heritage to hang in there longer. And these uh, younger places did not have that, the cultural footprint or the accumulated wealth and they all died first and i wish they hadn't died i i we we were in a better place and in an information landscape when huffpo buzzfeed and vice were all cranking out content alongside the the post the star the washington uh uh post the new york times a a bigger more crowded diverse media landscape is a win period full stop and the opposite is a loss but I just, is yeah, you know, and, and look, maybe look I'm being uncharitable, Jen, but that's just, I still remember, I still remember the, the, uh, the, 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 the schism of the old and, and the new digital and just the unbelievable cocksure optimism of the people who were leaving the legacy for the digital. You know, someone once said to me, when you're on top of the world, don't piss. Hmm. Um, it is kind of ironic also that we're going to look back on those days, which we thought were so grim as the glory days of our generation. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, because yeah, when all those people were flooding out of journalism, of the legacy places, I should say, there was, there uh, were they were doing so because they they couldn't imagine the newspapers would get worse. And now the digital places are gone and the newspapers are a quarter of the size they were tops. Yeah. yeah. You wanted no. to take one minute to comment on renewables. Oh God. After that, Vice, do we really? Okay. So I made one comment in my piece about the fact that Justin Trudeau's sort of ideological you're, you're, framing. Sorry, just your, your column on uh, Trudeau yeah, and Jesperson. It, yeah, exactly. The one we were talking about at the top here. Uh, they, they, I made one call or one literally one line in my piece pointing out that, you know, Justin Trudeau's own ideology was obviously framing the way that he was understanding the economics and um, culture and political culture of the province. Um, he, he made this sort of he's operating in this assumption that Alberta is some kind of low innovation, mm -hmm. you know, Beverly Hillbilly happened upon the oil sprung across the ground sort of thing. That's actually radically not true. Alberta has a very high degree of innovation. There's lots of innovation happening here and there's lots of renewables innovation. One of the point I made was like, there's a reason why Alberta is leading the country in terms of renewables investment. You know, and how does that square with, with your, your ideological framing here? Like it doesn't, that doesn't quite fit right. And some people on Twitter kind of pointed, pointed out like, well, wait a minute, you know, Daniel Smith's moratorium on renewables investment, blah, 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 ideology. And that's kind of true, but for me to get into this would be a column in and of itself. So I didn't want to like divert an already like 3000 word column about Justin Trudeau about, you know, highly specific uh, Alberta renewables pro and policy. And you say so, I run on. That yeah, was exactly. a long column. That was a long column. That was long. That was indulgent as it was. 
But anyway, to respond to those people, I would just make this note, and that is six months ago, um, Daniel Smith announced this moratorium on new renewables projects. Um, and a lot of there's a lot of drum and strang when it for when that was first it was a six month moratorium that was it and that's actually the moratorium is lifting next week. Um, and there was a lot of drum and strang about her decision to do this. Some of it was valid, some of it was storm and drang. Storm, I don't know. Whatever. You understand you what I'm saying? Drama. There was a lot of just sort of partisan drama about this. There was a lot of assumption that it was totally politically motivated. It was totally ideologically motivated. It was going to damage $33 billion in, in renewables investment. Like there was, there was all kinds of hysteria on this. Some of it I think was valid and I don't necessarily agree with the moratorium. Um, some of it was hyperinflated and there was a lot of assumptions about what was motivating that moratorium that I think probably aren't going to pan out. So what it was is it was a six month moratorium that affected 13 projects. Um, the moratorium did not affect projects that were already in construction. And the government's argument, and you can take this argument or leave it, was that the timing of the moratorium, just give me a second here. Um, sorry, I just got to yell at my child. I don't know what he's doing. Um, but anyway, it was 13 projects uh, and the government's argument was that the timing of the moratorium was over the winter. So like this was a period in which there was no construction happening anyway. And so that they would they were just going to reestablish things like uh, land use reclamation, um, who, you know, who would have say over these projects, that kind of thing. My sense actually was that essentially this was motivated a lot by um, southern Alberta municipalities that wanted a little bit more control over how many wind turbines were affecting their mountain views. Like it was that kind of stuff. And there was also concerns about like, like if you go and read the Western producer, you kind of get the sense of that there's concerns about, you know, whether or not like who's going to clean up these turbines after they're, they're decommissioned. What about some of the oil that's going into the, the thing? There were concerns about sort of, again, some of the environmental impacts of bird and wildlife, that kind of stuff. And some of this, some was some of this Yimby was some of this bullshit or sorry, NIMBY was some of this bullshit. Probably, I'm not trying to make an assessment. I'm trying to provide an overview of the issue. Um, so like, but there were a lot of people who walked away from that moratorium going, Danielle Smith is opposed to resource development because she's a right-wing ideologue who just wants to champion oil and gas. And that's just kind of their baseline ass assessment. And if that's true, and it might be, but if that's true, it doesn't really make sense for it to be a six month moratorium that's literally getting lifted next week. So it's getting lifted next week. A bunch of new regulations are going to come into the, the effect. And I'm going to try and hit the press conference because I'd like to get better answers as to why the government thought the moratorium was necessary in the first place. Yeah. And I'd like to be able to evaluate those answers before I assess my own opinion on this. Mm -hmm. the, all of this point being, there's a whole backstory here. There's a whole lot of drama here. But even with the six-month moratorium on these 13 projects, um, it still doesn't change the math. <laughs> We're still leading the country on renewables investment. So, you know, and you can believe that the, that the Alberta government was um, poorly more motivated or poorly intentioned in this moratorium where you cannot. Um, you can also raise some very legitimate concerns that the moratorium was kind of brought down last minute and raised uh, investor, investor uncertainty. Um, these are all valid criticisms, I think, to level at it. But it hasn't destroyed renewables investment in Alberta. We're still leading the country, and part of the reason why we're leading the country has to do with things like low taxes and deregulated electricity markets and all of these kinds of issues. Also, some of the actions of the NDP prior to the prior to the um, 
UCP winning under Kenny. I mean, the, the NDP championed a lot of um, uh, renewables investment as part of its sort of energy mix as well. So like, I don't think it's a left wing, right wing. I think there's a whole suite of reasons why this is happening. Um, and I do think there's some legitimate criticisms to be leveled at the current government on their treatment of, of, of renewables. But all of this to say is that the line in the column for the purposes of the column stands. It stands as measured. A six month moratorium affecting 13 projects does not destroy renewables investment in Alberta and it won't. The jerking off stuff was way more interesting. I'm sorry. I just couldn't let it go, Matt. I apologize to everyone involved. Like and subscribe. All right. Like and subscribe. Okay, you do the um, you do that press conference next week. I'll stay on the jerk off beat. We'll, we'll divide and conquer. Yeah, that seems fair. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.